0: Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chan. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing Free Guy, which came out earlier this year, and The Matrix, which came out 22 years ago, in 1999, the connection being that they are both set in digital virtual worlds. Right, let's jump in with Free Guy. William, give us a summary of this new film.
1: All right, Free Guy is the long gestating movie, but from director Sean Levy, uh, starring Ryan Reynolds, as well as uh, such luminaries as Jodie Comer and our very own Taika Waititi, featuring the titular Guy, a bank teller who starts to realize that the brutal cartoonish world he lives in is actually spoiler alert a video game excellent thank you william and i'll jump in with
0: the matrix So The Matrix is set in 1999 and centers around the character of Neo, played by Keanu Reeves. Neo, or Thomas Anderson, is a successful software developer. He works for a large corporation and moonlights as a hacker, trying to find an elusive fellow hacker called Morpheus. He doesn't kind of know what he's looking for, but he's heard of this thing called The Matrix, and he feels confident that it's going to provide him some answers and purpose in life and that's kind of where the story starts and as Neo continues on his journey he meets with Trinity played by the fantastic Carrie-Anne Moss and uh, through connecting with her he then connects with Morpheus played by Laurence Fishburne and he offers him a blue pill or a red pill blue pill, go back home forget this ever happened red pill, you get to see what the Matrix is for yourself and uh, yeah, no turning back It's worth saying the film is directed by Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski, two siblings. They are billed as the Wachowski brothers, which I find an interesting detail considering some of the hmm, readings that have been looked into this film since, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. But the Wachowski siblings have directed this and it really jettisoned them into a Hollywood career um, that we will talk about very shortly. It's worth mentioning that we will be talking about both films in detail, spoilers galore. So if you haven't seen either The Matrix or Free Guy, then I suggest you to pause this episode and come back to it at a future date. Brilliant, Sarah, I'm gonna throw the rako to you. Jump in with either film, what are your thoughts?
2: Look, um, Jeremy, William, uh, it's great to be here. Look, I think we can make this the shortest podcast we've ever done simply by agreeing that The Matrix is a fantastic film. Uh, And Free Guy isn't. So there we go. Um, Great. I've had a good time. Uh, (laughs) Look, um, let's be serious. In 1999, The Matrix was extraordinary. And I'm pleased to say that for whatever reason, and perhaps it's largely nostalgia based, On a rewatch, and this is not the first rewatch since 1999, uh, but on a rewatch for the the purposes of preparing for this podcast, the Matrix holds up in so many ways. And admittedly, probably we've been oversaturated over the last 22 years in terms of that wonderful uh, bullet time sequence and understanding this brave new way of having people run up walls and shoot things in slow motion and so on and so forth. But to me, it still uh, feels like an uh, extraordinary piece of cinema. Certainly it was back in 99. And I I, I think we will agree that it was groundbreaking and, of course, has been um, uh, adopted in many, many films ever since. But it also still works as a bloody good time. Um, uh, I don't. I was not enamoured of Free Guy at all, and I know we'll get into that. And I know we have varying views, which should make this really interesting. Um, I don't think, though, <clears throat> that Free Guy is going to go down in history um, as quite as sort of resonant and relevant and important as uh, the wonderful first Matrix film.
1: I really agree with uh, your views on on, on Matrix Sarah. I think rewatching it this time—it's been—it's been a while since I've seen the first Matrix, uh, but holy moly, does it ever hold up? I think. Really, the, the only things that date it in my eyes or in my ears are some of the, the soundtrack choices. I think when Rob Zombie appears in the club scene, it's like, whoa, mm. hello, 1999. Mm. Um, and then some of the action sequences, the visuals are just, they're paired with, I, I'll just call it like generic punk Mm. Uh, like ticka 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 which reminded me so much of those old and we've talked about this before dvd you wouldn't steal a car you wouldn't steal
2: a handbag that's
1: right yeah yeah entering the matrix is against the law um but yeah everything else the storytelling the oh my gosh just the filmmaking in general even beyond the special effects like it's so graphical and stylings it feels like a a living comic book or or manga much Mm. more so than many of the superhero films around today right Mm. it's it's so visually stylized in every single shot and of course add on on top of that the visual effects and the stunt work bring in like hong kong and chinese sensibilities and just like pioneering work and marrying that stuff with with groundbreaking cgi which still looks great to this day Mm. such good work I
0: love that, William. I think that's one of the strongest elements of The Matrix. And there are a lot of strong elements in The Matrix. But the way that it fused, like you said, Hong Kong sensibilities, anime, uh, a range of different styles that I can't think of a film that had done it quite like this before. And it's a hugely influential piece of work for that pastiche style of cinema. Um, The Wachowskis, I believe, storyboarded this film heavily. A lot of the shots that are very memorable, for instance, the red pill, red pill, blue pill shot, where you see it in Morpheus's eye, a sunglasses reflection, you see the two different pills in a different lens. Um, or I think about the, some of the overhead shots. Uh, a lot of that stuff was heavily storyboarded before they started filming, based on manga and um, anime imagery. And yeah, for all of the things that it's offered cinema, I don't think it, it, it doesn't really get much praise for that element. Um, mm. And whilst you're absolutely right, Sierra, every, every, every parody movie of the early 2000s had their slow motion scene. I mean, it's mm. in Shrek for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um, there, were fair, and, there were serious films as well that, that ripped it off. You remember there was that, that film with John Travolta as a baddie, uh, evil, evil guy. I want to say snake eyes. I don't think that's quite right, but there's a, there's a horrific scene in that where there's an explosion, and a whole lot of bullets, I think bullets, or you can tell I've only seen it once and, and vaguely remember, but I remember the special effects aspect of all of the shrapnel pinging out and ca- causing carnage was very reminiscent of that, mm. that whole bullet time uh technology from the matrix and that wasn't as done as a parody or a shrek kind of like nose tapping in joke even but yeah
1: yeah uh, also something that that jumps to mind immediately is jet Li's the one where you have bullet time except it's it's punching bullet time and so you have these bodies flying in the air in super slow motion while jet Li is moving regularly mm. um, a lot of stuff like that in the early to, to mid 2000s well john woo as well as another as another name that was coming
0: up at this time mm. um, and and I you know, if you look at people like Zack you know Zack Snyder and the amount of slow motion. Oh, films, yeah, I feel like it owes a lot to The Matrix, John Wu. and yeah, it's it's interesting. i In terms of the bullet, the bullet time scene, uh, I'm trying to think of another scene that that was that influential. I, I, there's not many. I think about the um entrance of Ishii into the House of the Blue Flowers. I believe it's called and Kill Bill, that mm. that, that music. You know, the dun dun dun. Yeah. Like yes. That kind of was equally parodied around that time. But um yeah, this film was Matrix was was huge. I remember seeing it as a 12-year-old. And uh my dad, you know, we're gonna go to the movies, we're gonna go see a movie with your uncle and your cousins. It's called The Matrix, just come. And and as a kid, you kinda like, oh cool, like we hadn't talked about it, nobody knew really what it was, and, and off we went. And it's one of those those very influential film moments, particularly when you're 12 slash 13, that really sticks with you. And I watched it again last night, and it was, I agree with both of you, it really held up. There's only one scene that now is quite cringe for, for very clear Which is reasons. that? It's the lobby shoot-up scene.
2: Oh, you're right, hmm. but but do you know why? Oh, oh, and I shouldn't leap in because you're about to say. I watched that. I I felt the same way. And the reason it feels cringe now is simply because, sadly, the Columbine boys and many, 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 many others have adopted the black trench coat, massive guns uh, down the sleeves and and inside uh, to then do massive shootouts. I I I'm not suggesting there wasn't gun violence before the Matrix happened, but so many. Um, gun violent crimes uh, derived from the Matrix's imagery. I think that's why it now feels cringy. Is have I have I trampled all over what you were going to say?
0: Oh, you haven't trampled on it at all. You've just you've said it, and and you've said mm. it very eloquently. And I and that's you're absolutely right. I think and just the narrative of gun violence is at a different stage now than it was in 1999. Um, it, there's a scene, the scene in the Matrix where Neo is first sort of freed, and him and Morpheus are in that white, yes. I think he calls it the console or something, and he's he's showing him this is your world as you know it, 1999, um, and this is before things started to change. And I feel that's kind of prophetic that 1999, despite being just before the turn of the millennium, there were a lot of key events that were to happen, in, particularly in, the, in America but also in our world, that have really shifted some of those sensibilities so mm. obviously 9 11 has been a, a big event um the columbine shootings and the, the the new war that america and other countries would go to in in iraq um, and i think the rise of the internet in a way that we had the internet in the 90s but it wasn't the the kind of behemoth that it was uh. going to become mm. um this and i said this to my boyfriend when we were watching us and i was like you know what 1999 was a really pivotal year was the kind of end of something significant. And we didn't
2: fully appreciate that beyond worrying about Y2K. Well, yeah, but you say beyond worrying. I mean, that was significant. We thought that when I say we, I don't really think I subscribe to the idea that the world was going to end uh, on December 31st, but it felt like a massive turning point to go into the new millennium. So Mm. the fact that the matrix uh, is the sort of the entree, the appetizer, if you will, to, uh, to, to that massive change, uh, in, in, in world history, um, seems incredibly apt. If it had come out in 2002, it would feel a little bit like, yeah, but we're already here now. Whereas, I don't know, it felt terribly clever, you know.
1: I, I do remember waking up January 1st in 2000 at my grandparents' place, uh, running over, turning on the light and seeing the light turn on and going, Oh, yeah, the the power's still on. World of Steelers <laughs> fans. If, if, if any listeners
0: out there are keen to investigate into Y2K a little bit further, there's a fantastic podcast that Sarah has mentioned before. I don't know whether on oh, air, yeah, Sarah, but you've definitely mentioned it to William and I, called You're Wrong About. Mm. And they do an episode on Y2K bugs. So You're Wrong About are two reporters. One of them goes and researches on a topic that people generally think they know about and and presents the truth. And the interesting thing with Y2K is that the huge amount of paranoia, uh, both corporate and government, and, and public as well, I should say, uh, was actually quite f- well founded. Yeah. Not not in the sense that it, you know the clocks were going to change over and things were going to ro- go wrong. There were a couple of instances of that, but um, it was it was important because it highlighted to corporations and governments and different people. How vulnerable we were in online spaces and digital spaces, and mm. it prioritized uh, digital, i guess work, digital safety, digital teams that that now are just an absolute given in our yeah. world. But, back then people focused on it and actually noticed a whole range of other issues when they were going through having to set up their systems for the potential of you know 2000 sort of
1: fizzing out their clocks mm. can i go back to the uh the talk about the lobby shootout because i i also felt it to be quite dated when watching it yesterday um but i i also feel the influences are really really on the nose in that scene i mean you guys talk about john woo it's it's just it's john woo meets robert rodriguez right like it's really pulpy it's really fetishizing bullets not really guns but bullets and of course the the slow motion particle effects everywhere like that's that's something straight out of hard-boiled or or any of the other john woo movies uh just with a much higher budget and maybe it's it's because of all the iconography that's built around it the the trench coats the the i mean the dusters the sunglasses and all the stuff that that leads it a credence of coolness that really differentiates it because it, it really does feel like this is us paying homage to something that's come before.
2: So you're saying that the matrix feels like an homage already, notwithstanding that in the last 22 years everything has been an homage to the matrix. Uh, that too. And and we'll
1: we'll talk a lot more about that when we get into Free Guy as well. Like it's <laughs> it's just an onion when you start peeling stuff back, right? Um it's mm-hmm. it's whatever it is in the public consciousness at the time. And and you have, uh, whether you call it an homage or a ripoff or inspiration, but sure. stuff built upon stuff built upon stuff. And so the onion just keeps on going, going going back to that Shrek analogy. Mm. <laughs> I really like uh, this, William. I think it's a really interesting point to bring up. And and again, it brings me back to Kill Bill. and
0: And Tarantino said that The Matrix would be his favorite movie. Of the time that he's been making movies if it wasn't for the sequels because he feels the sequels muddy up the mythology which i agree with Mm. um but in and of itself he's just like it's one of the most brilliant films and i think about kill bill and the confidence with which he pastiches so many elements in those movies um and how that's had a a, a large influence as well again Mm. not to the extent of the matrix Uh, but i agree with you the the way that it brought together the different threads of I guess action filmmaking that American and Western audiences hadn't quite experienced before, and the confidence with which the Wachowskis brought those elements together is quite incredible. And and I, I'm a, I'm quite a big fan of the Wachowskis. I don't love all of their stuff because it so often tips into goofy, <laughs> silly land. Um, and and you sort of see the hints of that in this film, but they really get the style right. That when you get to the end of the movie and Trinity literally saves Neo with a kiss, they've done the work. Mm, you know, yeah. they've done the work. I, I emotionally, I'm invested. I'm, I'm all good with this. But they don't do the work in some of their other films, which is, which is interesting. But they fully get that weaving together and the tonal. The hey, tonal weaving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like Hugo weaving. Yeah. Uh, Can I <laughs> anyway, just say?
2: Um, to uh, because there will have been um, viewers, listeners, watchers uh, shaking their fists at the podcast with my misremembering the John Travolta film. The film was 2001's Swordfish, uh, and it <laughs> may indeed it may indeed be worth a rewatch. But anyway, can I just say we have um, we have been praising the Matrix, I think quite rightly, uh, to the roof uh, for a lot of its qualities. But let's not forget it's also. A visionary film in terms of its story, its plot, its story, uh, its messaging, um, the universe that it's created, the provocation, the very fact that... Sadly, uh, and I watched this fantastic documentary. I think it was called "The Glitch in the Matrix." That you know, sadly, there are people who who have been so influenced by the film, The Matrix, that they believe we are living in in some sort of reality or unreality just like that, and are and they're behaving accordingly. Um, but that's extraordinary as well. So, this wasn't even a cool looking film um, with trend setting uh, costuming. And uh, I mean, I thought the soundtrack was incredible, uh, it certainly was at the time. I quite like it now, but again, I think that's nostalgia. Um, do you know what I mean, though? It's yeah. super clever and. Uh- if we were to se- segue eventually into Free Guy, I know that there are aspects about it that are kind of clever, but for the most part, it's so stupid and boring, um, like <laughs> boring. Like actually, just like Ryan
1: Reynolds' face. <laughs> I just like,
2: you know, I just, it was like, I am not interested in what's happening here. And we'll talk about the elements that made that even harder to to pay attention to. But I was just like, I don't even care. Whereas in the matrix, you care what happens. Okay,
1: a, a couple of things uh, to to talk about. What you're talking about, Sarah. Um, yeah, completely agreed. The the Eastern philosopher, philosopher, philo, Sorry, the philosophy. Philosophy. <laughs> uh, I, I hope we cut this out. <laughs> I'm oh, going mean, to keep it in. I think it's one. The philosophizing. <laughs> the Eastern yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the philosophizing. Yeah, that's it. That works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway philosophy of an eastern tone um, <laughs> is so so prevalent throughout the entirety of the matrix i mean if if you look at it with an uncharitable lens so much of morpheus's dialogue is just lawrence fishman being like a a machine for delivering these these eastern sounding cones of you know what exists does not exist yeah um and like he's just this exposition machine which is what my brother said when we were watching it um but it it makes sense and it's cohesive and it ties everything together with like a really neat bow um and of course it fits the visuals as well and the the style of the whole thing um and and so i think that is really what kind of gets out of control in the sequels and as you say jeremy straight into silly land like some of the philosophies in the sequels it's just bonkers, and and it's obviously stuff that the Wachowskis and the, their collaborators like really care about and think is important, and, th- and it's really heady stuff. But I think the mix really in the first one is just so perfect, and it's so hard to replicate that later on, uh, as we see in Reloaded and Revolutions.
0: Yeah, I love I love what you're both saying, and there is a real critique of society, and it's a shame that there are some people in society that have kind of miss the message they've they've gone for the literal, which is we're actually in a simulation. It's like, well, no, the critique is that we do live in a society where we are behaving. I guess, as well, we're placated with mm. with a with a system that allows us to feel a relative sense of peace, but it completely ignores the huge amounts of inequity and this mm. and the actual slavery that's happening in the world. So I think there's a really clear link there. And the Wachowskis have said that this film was born out of anger that they were angry at the world and kind of angry at how a lot of things were happening. And they've since gone on to say, and a, and a lot of that was their, their transness, realising their transness, but they didn't kind mm-hmm. of have the words or they weren't at that part of their journey to be able to voice it then, which I find really compelling. And they've managed mm-hmm. to tell a story that, um, yeah, that speaks to a lot of different themes without it being too specific because they've told it through this allegorical lens, which I think is the reason why you can read a trans journey into this film and that neo's journey of transitioning out of the matrix is yeah there, there's definitely some clear links there but also Finding his the,
2: true self that sort of thing
0: absolutely yeah mm. and and sort of you no know, going back and and seeing the world seeing the world for what it is and understanding how you can actually be free of some of those ideas and
2: and being loved uh, for who he is and who he really is i think that's a key thing right Absolutely,
0: yeah. I mean, I think it's another thing about this movie that gets undersold. It is a love story as well. There's a there's a love story at the heart of this movie that is very very clever on the Wachowskis' part that they weave again weaving in uh, mm-hmm. some of these different elements. Mm-hmm. Um, But it's interesting as well that the film has been taken in very disturbing ways. Like you mentioned the the trench coats and the sunglasses and shooting up
1: a place, Sarah. There's also, is it called the red pill? Yeah, red pilling. Yeah. just co-opted into this very, very disturbing alt-right almost um, uh, philosophy. And what
2: does red pilling mean?
1: It means to open your eyes, sheeple, to all the stuff that the libtards are. uh, Doing around the world, you know, kind of crunching it down to its bare basics.
2: Right, um, right, which is what we're seeing, obviously, with some sort of uh, anti-vaccination uh, rhetoric yeah. at the minute. Right, right.
1: Yeah, which
0: is which is interesting, and I, I guess I guess the you know they're challenging the status quo, they're disrupting the system, and they're trying to provide an alternative mode of thinking through, like you said, William, versions of Eastern philosophy uh <laughs> sorry it's too tempting um uh and yeah and i think um it's it's interesting and that, that it didn't fully land in the sequels and so people are left if they do take the message of this to sort of find their own new truth which i would hope on the whole people are really looking more with more critique at the world but hey as you can see some mm. some people have taken it off into some really destructive directions
2: so, guys, you know how I like a good Venn diagram sometimes, yeah? And I'm thinking oh, two yeah. circles here, two, thinking two circles with a with a bit of an intersection. Now, one circle is clearly the Matrix. The other circle, for the purposes of this podcast, is Free Guy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thinking that in the intersecting set, there is possibly the John Carpenter film from 1988. They Live. They Live. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Yes, so let's do this thing. So, They Live, marvellous film. I'm not even your typical John Carpenter kind of girl, but this is a marvellous film. And I don't know if you've seen it, Jeremy. Um, I really
0: want to. I love John Carpenter, but I haven't I haven't actually been able to find the film very successfully anywhere.
2: You know, I have a feeling I saw it in Paris a couple of years ago in a retrospective in a small repertory cinema. But oh, damn, I, the I, I, I... last time I was in Paris. That's right. Well, it was. And it might and be the last time. Last time. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, but anyway, the terrific thing about They Live is that it, it definitely has this idea of there being, uh, I wanted to call it an alternate reality. It isn't an alternate reality at all. It's reality. Or it's a whole lot of people wandering, making their way through life um sort of uh, just feeling like everything is fine and not noticing that the media and the government are are sending subliminal messages to keep the the population subdued, right? And then there's our protagonist uh, who, um, in putting on a pair of sunglasses, Mm -hmm. suddenly gets to see the world the way it truly is, which leads me (sighs) to free dumb guy.
1: Hang on, (laughs) hang on. Sarah, so you bring up Venn Diagram with they live And talking about how everything is fine. Uh, Can I please add another circle to this Venn diagram? Please. And instead of everything is fine, say that everything is also awesome. Oh. Okay. So listen. (laughs) Listen to this. A dystopian setting behind a cherry facade designed to keep the masses in line. Our protagonist, a hapless, goofy everyman who is secretly the one. Who gains the power to see beyond the veil, how the world truly is, and begins to learn how to manipulate the rules of the construct? A badass, cool biker chick in leather who somehow plays second fiddle to the hapless everyman and ends up confusingly becoming his his love interest. A black confidant whose sacrifice provides uh, proves to be the catalyst of the protagonist's self actualization. And all of our main characters kind of versus a megalomaniacal antagonist defined by his limited vision and maintaining the status quo. Ladies and gents, it's the Matrix, it's Free Guy, and it's 2014's The Lego Movie. <laughs> Man, this this is crazy. Watching Free Guy, and I, I mean, truth be told, I at the end of the day, I I quite enjoyed Free Guy for all its faults. But it really reminded me of a a quote from the Netflix show Bojack Horseman. So I found the quote over here, season six, episode 12. Uh, This is Bojack, voiced by Wu Arnett, uh, kind of talking about his troubled childhood uh, in a TV interview. Um, I I can't, I'm not as good a a voice actor (laughs) as Wu Arnett. I'll try my best. I come from a broken home. and I used to feel like my whole life was an acting job just doing an impression of the people I saw on television, which is just the a, produ- a projection of a bunch of equally screwed up writers and actors. I felt like a Xerox of a Xerox of a person. You know what I mean? And that is what Free Guy feels like. It is a Xerox of a mm. Xerox. Mm. So much of the Lego movie is built on the template of the Matrix. I mean, mm. it, it's, it's a pastiche of the Matrix. And of, you know, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, all that, that, that stuff. And the, the movie Free Guy is basically, I think when you really get down to price tags, a remake of the Lego movie. It's nuts, you guys. It's nuts. <laughs>
2: So can I say, I've, I've, I've been very honest with you fellas, gaming is not my my day-to-day activity nowadays at this age. And I do feel that my gaming life, which as we've spoken about uh, offline, um, was heavy, heavy in the 1980s with those Nintendo game and watches. Uh, Donkey Kong Jr, yo! Um, but to be honest, my gaming life, uh, in terms of video gaming and whatnot, ended around the time of Tekken 2, um, Soul Blade and other PS2 games. So I um, am not your natural audience for Free Guy. I would say the things that I found really clever about it was the notion that there are NPCs, non-what non, non what players?
1: Uh, player characters.
2: Oh, non-player characters, right. Okay, so extras in in my line of work, perhaps. So there are a whole bunch of extras, um, many of whom probably don't have proper character names and and wouldn't pass the Bechdel test, um, and that they're all there to serve this purpose. And I loved the idea... Of taking us inside the life of an NPC, um, and then being utterly sympathetic towards that NPC, and indeed the other NPCs, and so on and so forth. And so, in the scene in Free Guy where they all go on strike, I thought, well, that's blimmin' marvellous, and you've got all those um, actual player characters in the game going, where are they? You know, I thought that was delightful, and I thought that was clever. Um, I though. Don't see why anybody other than possibly an eleven-year-old child would find things like the Star Wars music and the lightsaber and the the other sort of really on-the-nose um, uh, nods to to other or oh, the Marvel movies. You know, Chris Bloody Evans sitting in a cafe watching the the that very very quick uh, Captain America um, uh, gag. Is that funny? Is that
1: cool? Well, well, Sarah, I, at that point of the movie, when Chris Evans appeared, I thought it was pretty funny. At least you're (laughs) honest. I I, I, I was like, oh, Um, it it was, uh, I'll say this, I'll say this. Maybe, maybe it's just because in our year of 2021, there's also another movie out called Space Jam 2 A New Legacy that did this to the nth degree, to horrifying, horrifying levels. Um, And seeing this, and seeing how Free Guy did this with almost this reined-in feel, even though after Fox was purchased by Disney, they have access to all these IPs. And to just see, you know, a a tidbit, a sprinkling of IP was actually kind of refreshing. And maybe that was the bar (laughs) being lowered to drastically horrific levels.
0: I saw this film in the cinema, before we went into our, what are we, in our ninth week? Are in our eighth week of lockdown? I've stopped don't,
2: counting, Jeremy. Yeah, it's just life areas. now.
0: <laughs> so um, went along. And I, I don't generally like computer game films because I find that they don't actually, they, they just generally don't make good movies. I'm often, they rest on their laurels, uh, the imagery of their games, and I find them, Generally, yeah, pretty boring. And so I had very low expectations for this movie. I wasn't enamored by the concept that much. I didn't really want to go and see a whole lot of little nods and tips and gimmicks and Easter eggs for what you might expect to see in a Mm. a game. Uh, But I was really surprised. I guess going in with very low expectations always helps with with a film um, and and had a great time. And I think for me, the part that really impressed me was the storyline with, uh, is it Jodie Coma? Is that her name? Yes. Jodie Coma and the kid off uh, Strange Things. Things. Mm. And his name is, I'm just looking at. Is it uh, uh, Joe, Joe Carey? Joe Carey. Yeah. I found their storyline to be the most compelling part of the film. And, you know, beyond the fact, I, I you know, the fact that they kind of were, the love, you know, love relationship. I didn't really, couldn't really care about that. But it just the idea of of them creating, trying to create a game that was doing something different, trying to create a game that appealed to uh, people's sensibilities that weren't just about shooting and destruction. I found a really interesting commentary about video gaming, and I think about how for the longest time, video games were the arena of the the male um, or the masculine um and how people were really trying to break in you know quote unquote break into the female market and then you had you know computer games on our phones and facebook games that appeal to a more feminine sensibility when you've got the things like the sims and the various FarmVilles that have come up and i just think that there's something quite special about that idea and the way that the answer to the problems in the world of free guy was to lean into a different style of video gaming that was sort of beyond the veil of this world. And yeah, I mean... I, the only thing I didn't enjoy was Taika Waititi's performance. And oh. I love Taika Waititi. Oh, but actually I could we have
2: time to talk about
0: this. <laughs> I, I couldn't understand what he was saying through lots of the movie. He sort of mumbled his words a lot. That's
2: what I thought. And then I thought, I know he's using his normal Kiwi accent. And I appreciate there are some good reasons for that. But I thought, what? I can't understand what you're saying. And can I just quickly say, because you've started, so I'll finish. Um, his performance was so awful. And so lazy, actually. Um, it felt actually, really
0: lazy. It yeah. felt incredibly really
2: lazy. lazy. But you know what's interesting, to me at least, is it made those other uh, characters seem very much better so you've got the you've got um keys who is your your love interest dude you've got the other programmer fellow who was in Brittany runs a marathon um and i don't really like him as uh, as a general rule as a performer but he actually playing against Tika's utter nonsense <laughs> self-indulgent uh, self-indulgent unconsidered lazy unfunny Nonsense! I think made those guys come off better, and they actually came off like serious programmers. In that, well, when I say serious, you know what I mean. Within within that organization, that's yeah. what I thought.
0: I think I think as well he was making very clear choices that just weren't landing because we know Taika Waititi can do a great job. I, I've seen him do some fantastic work as an actor over the years, and I think this is a case of of where his he was. He's he's like the wunderkind, right, of of yeah. Hollywood. And if Sean Levy's bringing him in and thinking, oh, cool, let's just let him improvise. He's great. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, that's that. I guess is a recipe for what we see on screen. I think Taika would have done much better with it, with just a clear script and staying to it. And
2: uh, yeah, it just was messy. And it was whenever he was on screen, I was like, oh, this is droll. Do you know what it, it felt like to me? And look, goodness. Oh, my. Oh, so much to say. But it, it felt very much to me like this. When I say self-indulgent, I've always had a real beef um with the Oceans movies, I love Oceans Eleven. Oceans Twelve is quite good. By the time they get to o- quite good, but not that good. By the time they get to Oceans Thirteen, it just feels like you're watching a bunch of mates who thought, "Oh, we'll make another movie, and we'll get heaps of money for it, and we'll have a bit of a laugh, and people will probably pay to come and see it." And it felt a little bit like that to me. And that's, I think, what I object to, and that's why I keep banging on about it feeling lazy. Now, I think you're right, Jeremy. I think I have read that sort of Sean Levy didn't give him. Um, particularly strict instructions. I do think he's a wunderkind in Hollywood. I do think everybody knows Tyker's undeniably talented and funny and can improvise and all that stuff. So they give him a massively long leash. Nobody has the wherewithal to say to him, mm, I don't actually think that that Kentucky fried chicken joke is funny. So could you give us something else or should we cut it, you know, or something? And therefore it just feels sloppy and I I I object. I object yeah. to that.
1: <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, I'll take your Oceans movies and uh, bring in my own hand of Judd Apatow movies. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes, boy. William. I agree. Yeah. It's just like, well, we've got a bunch of mates and you're all pretty funny on your yeah. own. So keep yeah. that camera rolling. This is fried gold. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you guys have been saying. Just, it, it felt really, really... Sloppy filmmaking, um, and it's not funny. I, I guess the only the only time I laughed was oh, well, I, I laughed twice with Tiger stuff. One, his initial entrance where you see this this figure come in and then you realize he's wearing like a ankle length hoodie, uh, like <laughs> a hoodie, a dressing robe. It, it, it was pretty funny. And then at the end, where the solution to all his problems is to literally grab an axe and start hacking at the servers was so ridiculous you just can't help but go this is this is how we're ending this movie like he's he's just hacking and slashing also that's not how servers work ladies and gents um yeah otherwise every single piece of dialogue his accent his little his little tics and mannerisms it's like what the heck is going on
2: This, this is ridiculous and not in a good way it felt like when you're at a school improv show, and the kid who knows he's cool, good looking, and funny, yeah, <laughs> know, yeah. gets out there and uh. does some stuff, um, and 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 everyone's like, ah, he's so cool, good looking, and funny, um, uh, you know. Yeah, I, look, I can't even give you the minutiae of the bits of his performance that sort of work and the bits that don't. And even as I say this, I feel kind of mean and feel kind of bad. And I, and I need to make it really clear. This is not a tall poppy syndrome issue at all. This is holding somebody in extremely high regard and therefore having high expectations of their ability to um, to step up and uh, and do what they're going to do. And then just feeling like this is not it.
0: I feel like I actually think it's Sean Levy's responsibility in his team. I don't think it's I think what we're seeing in terms of what Tyker's doing, that's a director's responsibility to help yeah, hone you're right. that situation. And we know that Tyker can do brilliant. And I and I think any actor can do brilliant with the right team and the right director. So I think what what was said earlier about Sean Levy or someone not having the wherewithal to be able to kind of push back is important. But and William, when you when you're talking about that scene where Tyker is smashing up the servers, and I guess the the other side of that is Guy running running down that bridge into the city into sorry into the ocean. It, it really reminded me uh, of of another film, and we talked about potentially pairing it with this uh, instead of The Matrix, and that is Dark City, mm. which I do believe hugely influenced The Matrix as well. Um, but that's a film that yeah, it's sort of a cult classic. I don't even know if it's a cult classic. People a lot of people don't really even know about it,
1: but it's very good. Mm. Uh, for a second, I thought we were going to say Truman Show because that's also basically the climax of that film, right? Ah, true. Yeah.
2: Well, and also he goes. Um, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I was going to say, what's his name in it? Guy, sorry, Guy, <laughs> goes up, doesn't he? And he sort of like pokes at the um, pokes at the 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 boundary
1: the, of reality. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which
2: of course is a, a boundary over the sea, because where else would you put one? I suppose. Um, Oh, Inception, Inception, right? So I do actually quite like when, when um, oh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because it's possible I might have been doing a little bit of double screening by the time I got to this point in the film, which I would never do with a film that I was enjoying or respected. Um, But am I right in saying that in the moments when the the game was being taken offline, the walls and everything start crumbling, and the buildings Mm. start crumbling? And and I think it's Jodie Coma who is is hurtling through that and watching as it all starts to crumble down. That felt very inception to me. Well,
0: I think you're right, Sarah, because it doesn't just crumble, it moves and squashes and things lift yeah. up, which is very
2: inception. Mm. Um yeah, and no, it's, it's changing, changing. in an in an evolving sort of way. You see, isn't it? That's what's clever. It's like there is something external happening that is starting to break this up, and that's the same with the dreams in Inception. If you know, if if you're getting water thrown on you, it'll feel like water in a different context in the dream, and so on.
1: I, I think I'm going back to the game stuff. Uh, like I, I play a lot of video games, and for for what it's worth, I think this. This is pretty good. Like, it's a pretty good video game movie, even though it's not based on any particular video game. It rem- reminded me a lot of Jumanji. Uh, is it called Welcome to the Jungle? oh uh, yeah. Movie? Yeah, like these are obviously movies written by people who, if they if they don't understand the minutiae of video games, at least have played a video game, which is more than I could say for something like Super Mario Brothers, um, where like the the rules and and how the game world works and all that, like. It, it generally is pretty cohesive. I, I like the fact that the sunglasses are the the user interface, and putting them on, you get to see the you know they they live kind of version of the world. I, I like how you have real streamers, like real streamers in this movie, um, who provide you know little bits and pieces and and have some some links to the real world. Uh, I, I like all the stuff, all the little little things. Like if you look in the backgrounds of so many of the scenes when you're in Free City, there's people just doing stupid things like running against the wall or like bending yes. out, down and picking something that's non-existent. And that's that's how people play video games. You know, it's, it's not mainly just follow the objectives. People mm. like to be silly and do silly stuff. So I, I like that for the most part the movie understands that. And includes that as, as part of the world. Um on the flip side, I feel like there's there's also a couple of jokes about the basement dweller and the the, the guy who's, you know, eating raspberry twizzlers and it just it seems like they're kinda having their cake and eating it too. Like, oh, video games are hip, video games are great. But also if you play video games, you're You're a, you're, a loser. Yeah. Yeah. Loser. yeah it, it just tonally, some of those scenes didn't quite mesh. But for the most part, I thought it was it was relatively positive for, for you know, um, what it was portraying.
2: That's such a good point, because I was thinking about Twizzler Guy, for want of a better name, yeah. just because was it? he was the Channing Tatum character, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. So I actually want to, you know, backtrack ever so slightly to say, I did think it was quite clever the way that his headset headset was obviously still on and you hear the, cha- you, you see Channing yeah. Tatum saying it, but you hear him going, Mom, put the sock down. That's not, yeah. leave that sock alone. And you know that, of course, that's the real players Life and I did actually think, oh, that is quite clever that intersection, if you will, of the the real player, but also how he manifests in the game. But you're absolutely right. On the one hand, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, and I'm really, I'm trying to be thoughtful about how I put this. The whole thing felt like a male fantasy. And it felt like the male fantasy of a guy who can't get a girlfriend. And it's written that way because, or to the extent that Keyes literally designs a scenario, bases it on his best female friend who, you know, da 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 da, da and then mm, at the end and so on, which is actually lovely. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's all, it is, it is like, this is the space in which I get to be the person I wish I could be. And, um,
1: I fully but, agree. With ha, hang on, um,
2: I'll fight back on that a little bit. Isn't
1: because how I saw the movie isn't, isn't the movie from Jodie Comer's point of view? And uh, f- for me, like Keys was was kind of the 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 girl who was there all along, you know that trope, except flipped, gender flipped. Do you I mean? Wrong do you mean that? from like, her point of view? She was like, of view, I've always yeah.
2: liked this guy.
1: Yeah, it, it felt very John Hughesy. The um. The the whole you know love confession at the end, um, because he wasn't he wasn't a developed character. She was she had much more to do than he did. Yeah, yeah but think... he
2: he had written her hadn't he? He I mean he created her character. No no he created guy. Mm, yeah true 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 true. She's, true. she's not a character. She's a real human. Yeah. True. So he created guy though with a special sort of AI or was that? this is where I don't understand. He created guy. To meet, oh, to be sort of awakened by Keyes's ideal girl, whom and he based all of that on Millie's character. Millie. Yeah,
1: that's th- right. That's right. That's
0: right. Um I, I think you both got a point though. I think William, you're right. I think there is a there is a prioritizing of Jody Coma's character that I really appreciated. And like I said, was the kind of core for the film, core of the film for me. But Sarah, I think you're right as well that there's there is this male fantasy element of this movie and there's no other female characters in this movie. It's very,
1: it's very one side. Coffee
2: shop girl. No, just yeah. <laughs> um, I just I joke.
1: There, do... There's the best character in the movie, which is the head of the art department and how she's just like, Taika, we can't do this. <laughs> yeah, it felt, That felt very, very true to life. Like just the, the, the these, you know, cubicle artists going like, well, I mean, management is telling us to do this. We'll we'll do the best we can. (laughs) All right, team, final thoughts. Uh, Sarah, do you want to start us off?
2: Um, Well, uh, we could have cut the last 45 minutes, uh, Jeremy, because I stand by saying The Matrix is a great movie that still holds up and Free Guy isn't. (laughs)
1: <laughs> William, give us your final thoughts Alrighty, uh, Matrix, yeah, Masterpiece uh, Loved re-watching it um, Had issues with Netflix cutting my movie in half, but uh, <laughs> that's a story for another time um, Free Guy, I was really genuinely shocked at how much I ended up enjoying it um, a, a, One thing we haven't mentioned is the talk of AI and how, how AI plays into so much of the climax um, I, I really thought of the movie Her at the end uh, the spike jones movie her mm, mm. um and, and how her ends up sorry her ends up with the ai kind of gaining omnipotence and fast surpassing their human creators and i wonder whether that's gonna be what happens after free guy you know the, the the events of the movie like ryan reynolds just realizes that i don't have to be ryan reynolds i can be god and then you know stuff takes off and we get judgment there um, but with with all that's been said, yeah, I I thought the sweetness of Free Guy was really refreshing. It was a uh, warts hard on its sleeve, and I can forgive a lot of the tiger stuff and a lot of the plot stuff because at the end of the day, it's original property that that is genuinely positive. Um, and there's not that many movies you can say does that in in 2021.
0: I really appreciate that, William. And I was going to categorize my final thoughts with a similar sentiment, which is watching Free Guy and Absolutely, all the pastiche of other elements of IP. Yep, that was all in there. Um, but there is an originality to what they're trying to do. And watching The Matrix, that was one of the things that struck me. I was like, oh, man, this came out at a time where when, every time you went to the movies, you didn't kind of know what you were going to get. And it was really exciting. And, mm. and whilst we look back at these classics with rose-tinted glasses and forget all of the other average movies that came out at the same time, I don't know there's something really exciting about that that has been lost and we've talked about that i think a lot in in our podcasts that generally when you go to the movies now you 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 know what you're getting beat for beat
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and I, I really miss that and i'm not saying that free guy hugely achieves that but i do think that there is a space where it's it's filling a little bit of a niche where it's something new that we haven't seen seen before um and, and i guess reflecting on the matrix one other one other film that i'd like to put out there is Alien Resurrection. Now Alien Resurrection That's not is not like you, Whoa. Jeremy. <laughs> I know, Sorry, right.
2: Did you say Alien? Gosh,
0: yeah, my favorite okay. movie. Uh, <laughs> Aliens my favorite movie. Alien Resurrection is is probably the the weakest or one of the weakest of the Alien films. However, there are some shot-for-shot recreations in The Matrix. So Trinity jumping across the mm. the chasm of the street, that exact shot is at the end of Alien Resurrection with Ripley jumping across a chasm, it's shot in the same way. Um there are other elements as well of of sort of emerging from eggs and um there's some other some other really key key pieces that you can tell that the Wachowskis have been influenced by that that series as well. So yeah, Matrix, as you said, is is a masterpiece. I fully stand by that and I really appreciate Both how it's brought together so many elements of what went before, and how it's informed so many elements of what came after, Um, and I and I think, like you said, it still really holds up.
2: Do you notice also Black Widow um, lands the way that Trinity lands in the Matrix? You know how there was all that. I think lots
0: of people, lots of people land like that, right? (laughs) Superhero landing. Yeah, but only now,
2: right? I bet they did it before nineteen ninety nine. I'm just saying.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can find Cinema in Context on SoundCloud, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe and follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, and until then,
1: no, am I. Am I?